Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Thomas Homer Dixon, Executive Director of the Cascade Institute, who warns that U.S. democracy may be headed toward collapse and the imposition of a right-wing dictatorship. Dr. Maha Hilal, an organizer with the group Witness Against Torture, who discusses the ongoing campaign to close down the Guantanamo Bay U.S. military prison in Cuba that's been operating in violation of international law for 20 years. And Phil Smith, United Mine Workers of America's Director of Communications and Government Affairs, who talks about the union's disagreement with West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin on his opposition to the Build Back Better bill. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Demonstrators have taken to the streets in protests across Europe and the U.S. to demand an end to Bosnia and Herzegovina's most serious political and security crisis since the 1990s. Bosnian Serbs are now threatening to secede, and fears grow about a slide toward renewed conflict. During celebrations of Orthodox Christmas, Serb nationalist leaders issued statements aimed at provoking their Muslim neighbors. Shots were fired near mosques during prayers, and nationalist songs glorifying convicted Serbian war criminals were sung at street demonstrations. Following its devastating war in the 1990s in which 100,000 people died, Bosnia was split into two autonomous regions— the Serb Republic and a federation dominated by Croats and Muslims linked by a weak central government. Now, Bosnia is experiencing its most dangerous political crisis since the end of that war, reviving concerns of a new conflict after Bosnian Serbs blocked the work of the central government last summer and began a process aimed at undermining state institutions. The number of asylum applications in Mexico nearly doubled in 2021 from two years earlier. According to the head of Mexico's Commission for Refugee Assistance, most asylum applications are from Haitian and Honduran migrants. The dramatic increase in the number of Haitians making their way through Mexico has been spurred by economic crisis, a devastating earthquake, and political turmoil following the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise in July. 60,000 Haitian migrants left South America in recent months due to the pandemic and anti-black discrimination. To expel migrants, the Trump administration began using the Remain in Mexico policy and Title 42, a measure restricting migrants' movement during the pandemic. The Biden administration has kept both policies in place. The Remain in Mexico program has kept thousands of asylum seekers out of the U.S., but made migrants vulnerable to corrupt Mexican officials who are assigned to protect them. The current administration has also kept deportations at almost the same level as the Trump regime. In the first five months of the Biden administration, 64% of people encountered by the Border Patrol were expelled under Title 42. 
Early in 2020, as the coronavirus pandemic filled hospitals across the U.S., J.P. Morgan Chase earned goodwill from its customers by issuing a temporary pause on payments for mortgages, credit cards, and car loans. At the same time, the nation's largest bank had quietly begun to unleash a lawsuit blitz against many of its struggling customers. Starting in early 2020 and continuing to today, Chase has filed thousands of lawsuits against credit card customers who have fallen behind on their payments. According to ProPublica, J.P. Morgan was heavily criticized for robo-signed lawsuit abuse during the 2008 recession. In 2015, the U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau issued a report finding that Chase used deceptive affidavits and other documents prepared without following required procedures against Chase customers. The CFPB also found that 10% of the cases Chase won contained erroneous amounts that were greater than what the consumers legally owed. Once Chase wins a victory in court, the bank can seek to garnish a customer's wages or raid their bank accounts. These lawsuits go on consumers' credit reports, which damage their access to credit, insurance, employment, and housing. According to consumer advocates, courts around the country have grown too accepting of what big banks and debt collectors say. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As Republicans across the U.S. continue to echo Donald Trump's big lie that he was robbed of victory in the 2020 presidential election due to widespread voter fraud, the party is moving to undermine democracy by imposing state voter suppression laws and measures to subvert future election results. According to a recent analysis by the Brennan Center for Justice, at least 19 states enacted 33 laws that further restrict access to voting in 2021. Democrats, meanwhile, have failed to enact any legislation to safeguard voting rights and democracy. While the House has passed the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, conservative Democrats Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kristen Sinema of Arizona have blocked any reforms of the filibuster that would allow passage of these bills. Thomas Homer Dixon executive director of the Cascade Institute at Royal Roads University in Vancouver, Canada, recently wrote an opinion piece that gained international attention titled, The American Polity is Cracked. Canada Must Prepare. Your reporter spoke with Professor Homer Dixon about the warning signs he sees that U.S. democracy could unravel as soon as 2030 and what America's neighbor to the north should do to prepare to meet the threat of a U.S. right-wing dictatorship. The point of the article really was to bring attention to my fellow Canadians for the the nature of the crisis. I think that in Canada, we were, frankly, most of us were deeply traumatized by the Trump presidency. It was a very difficult time for most Canadians. Donald Trump has supporters in Canada, but they're a minority of the population, a small minority. So when President Biden was, was installed, 
there was this great sigh of relief and we thought we could sort of get on with other things. And unfortunately, as, as most Americans know who are concerned about these issues, the situation has actually deteriorated substantially in the United States since uh, the inauguration. And I was, I was trying to outline for Canadians why that's the case, what the underlying causal dynamics are that have produced this crisis, and why it could take the United States to a very dire place in coming, coming years. There are some fairly, fairly clearly identifiable stages. There's the upcoming midterm elections for the House of Representatives and a third of the Senate. There's a reasonable chance that the Republicans will capture both houses at that point. And then, of course, uh, you have the likelihood that Donald Trump is going to run for president again in 2024. Biden at the moment looks really quite weak if he's the Democratic nominee. And then the question is, if Trump were to be reelected, what would that mean for the United States and for democratic institutions? So lots of people are talking about civil war in the United States at this point. I didn't really focus on that. I was more focused in this article on the collapse of democratic process in the United States and then the consolidation potentially of a, of a right-wing regime. I put a very stark label on it. I, I called it a right-wing dictatorship because when you have the subordination of power to an individual who puts himself above the rule of law, that's what I would call a dictatorship. Professor Roman Dixon, I wanted to ask you about the armed groups that have been affiliated with the Republican Party. It certainly is unique in my memory of American history that an American political party had an armed wing, like we see at present with uh, the Oath Keepers, other assorted militia groups, the Boogaloo Boys, a whole range of armed yep. groups have uh, allied oh. themselves with the Republican Party, and the Republican Party has not declined that alliance. From your reading of history and other failed states and failed democracies, what can we learn about political parties that decide to accept an affiliation with armed groups? So it is a significant development, the, the uh, association of these paramilitary groups with uh, a major political party. And I think it, it, it's been recognized and understood, but I'm, I'm not sure all the historical parallels have been, have been thought through. Um, one always has to be very, very careful in talking about the rise of the Nazis in Weimar, Germany. Uh, I, I mentioned Weimar in the article, and I actually identify a series of parallels with Weimar, which are quite striking between what's happening in the United States uh, and what happened in, in Weimar in the 20s and 30s. But one of the things that is important is that the, uh, the SS, the stormtroopers, the, the brown shirts, were a wing of the Nazi party that basically created chaos and intimidated potential opponents. Now, um, they were much, much more violent and prevalent than what we're seeing in the United States now. They, they emerged from the chaos following the World War I when there, was, uh, there were sort of breakaway elements of the, of the German military that became uh, paramilitary groups and eventually consolidated themselves into private militaries for various political parties, including right-wing German nationalist political parties. So that it's a very different history and situation, much more radicalized and extreme in Germany during the 20s. Nonetheless, one of the things I noted when I was consulting with people to write my article for the Globe and Mail, one of the things that they kept saying to me is that, and it gets back to the point I was making earlier, that many Republican moderates are afraid now. They fear. They fear for their physical safety, and they fear for the physical safety of their families because of the operation of these groups. 
And that's exactly the kind of thing that the brown shirts did, that the SS did in Weimar, Germany. They intimidated people who otherwise would have been inclined to be more moderate. And there was, for a period of time, a you know, quote-unquote moderate component of the, of the National Socialists in the 20s. Uh, but they intimidated them, drove them to the extremist wing of the party, and uh, we can see we can see that happening now. Either either moderate Republicans shut up, uh, or leave the party, uh, don't run for re-election, or end up basically acquiescing to the extremist rhetoric, the most extreme rhetoric and Trumpist rhetoric within the party. So you know the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Boogaloo Boys. I mean, they they are following a pattern that is established in other declining polities that is quite identifiable. Where you have a, as you pointed out, military groups that are associated with a a leading political party and actually kind of do the dirty work, create chaos. And the more chaos there is, the more people say, oh, we need a strong man to you know, bring order to things. And, and so it's, it's all part of um, heightening the fear and the anger and the sense of disorder that actually leads people to want an extremist, a, a strong man, to basically bring peace and order to the situation. That was Thomas Homer Dixon, executive director of Canada's Cascade Institute and author of the book, Commanding Hope, The Power We Have to Renew a World in Peril. Find a link to his recent article titled The American Polity is Cracked and Might Collapse, Canada Must Prepare by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. It's been 20 years since President George W. Bush opened the U.S. Military Detention Center at America's military base at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, in the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Since 2002, nearly 800 detainees have passed through Guantanamo, with many prisoners never having been charged with a crime or tried in a court of law. Current and former detainees have reported abuse and torture while at the prison camp. Guantanamo currently has 39 detainees left, including Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the suspected architect of the September 11th attacks. Thirteen of the detainees still being held at Guantanamo have been cleared for transfer to other nations with security guarantees, and ten are considered forever prisoners. Human rights groups around the world have urged President Joe Biden to honor his pledge made during his 2020 presidential campaign to close the Guantanamo prison camp. Your reporter spoke with Dr. Maha Hilal, an organizer with the group Witness Against Torture, and co-director of Justice for Muslims Collective. Here, Dr. Halal talks about the ongoing effort to close down the Guantanamo prison and the need for accountability and justice for the hundreds of detainees that were held there in violation of their basic human rights. So as of now, you know, the status of the prison is, is pretty unclear, although, you know, President Biden has indicated he wanted to close Guantanamo Bay prison. Um, his administration has done very little at all to make any significant moves towards this end. Um, I know that the counter-argument, again, would be that he has cleared a number of prisoners for release, but again, um, that doesn't actually mean that they've been released, nor will they be released any time in the foreseeable future. You know, when we talk about the closure of, of Guantanamo, I think there's a, there's a couple of things um, that, that need to be emphasized. One is that this has been a 20-year project. 
there were at the height of Guantanamo Bay and, and throughout the prison's history post 9-11. Of course, it has a very problematic history pre-9-11, um, a total of 780 Muslim men who have gone through um, Guantanamo Bay prison, and of course, uh, men who have been subjected to the most egregious forms of torture. One of the things I think we need to focus on is not just the closure of Guantanamo, but the uh, abolishing of Guantanamo, um, because we talk about the closure of Guantanamo as if, uh, you know, abandoning the use of a physical structure will solve the problems that Guantanamo created. And and really the reason for this is the fact that we have prisoners that continue to be detained at Guantanamo, and we have all of those who have been released from Guantanamo who basically have to live in very precarious circumstances. Um, the U.S. government has all but neglected them and abandoned them in most cases, and so their ability to resume a life, a life of normalcy um, is severely compromised. And so I think this idea of, um, of closing the prison, um, there's, there's a lot to it. And the other thing I will say is that many who have advocated for the closure of the prison have also advocated for the use of uh, federal courts to try uh, the prisoners, and for anyone who's familiar with federal terrorism prosecutions post-9-11, and in particular the targeting of Muslims, um, we know that that's not a feasible solution in terms of getting around the very deeply entrenched problem of Islamophobia. You know, there has been the suggestion of, of having plea agreements, and, you know, perhaps that is, you know, worthy of consideration, but I think we have to understand Guantanamo as part of a larger system of deeply entrenched, again, institutionalized Islamophobia that has run deep in the course of the war on terror. Dr. Halal, I wanted to ask you about President Joe Biden's pledge during his 2020 presidential campaign to close down the Guantanamo prison. What, if any, progress has the Biden administration made on fulfilling that pledge? It seemed as though there was some momentum in the beginning of his administration. Um, you know, there was going to be a study examining the closure of Guantanamo Bay. And then, you know, of course, there have been a few prisoners cleared for release. You know, those were positive movements towards the prison's closure. However, as you may know, um, in December, there was a hearing that was led by Senator Dick Durbin on the closure of Guantanamo, and the Biden administration failed to send a representative. Of course, we can you know, expect that that was intentional. That kind of seemed like a very clear indication of where the administration is at in terms of the prison's closure. And we have to remember that he was vice president when Obama was trying to close the prison. And although he was said to be sort of vocally advocating for the closure of, of the prison while he was vice president under Obama, um, it, it nevertheless did not happen. At this point in time, right, there's a lot of competing political demands, especially with the ongoing pandemic. And so whether or not the closure of Guantanamo will be a priority to Biden, you know, it, it remains to be seen. Um, and so, I, you know, I'm not extremely hopeful in terms of Guantanamo Bay closing under the Biden administration. And I think there's a lot more that could be done and should be done. But I also think if the goal is to address Guantanamo in its totality, then it's not just about closing the prison. It's about the problem of Guantanamo, which has rendered, again, Muslim men summarily guilty, which not only affects those who remain detained, but also also those who have uh, been released. But 
there's going to be a time where there's a reckoning. And I think that's already happening because so many survivors from Guantanamo Bay prison are speaking out about their experiences and their stories and um, how much they have struggled, how much they've struggled post-release. So I think, you know, whether or not the United States wants to come to terms with it, there is a reckoning that's happening. And I think it will do the country better if it actually acknowledges. And this goes with, you know, the many historical state violence and state crimes that this, this government is responsible for. That goes along with, you know, the enslavement of African Americans and the systemic and structural injustice um, that's rooted in anti-blackness that has always been a part of this country. That was Dr. Maha Halal, an organizer with the group Witness Against Torture and co-director of Justice for Muslims Collective. Learn more about the ongoing campaign to close down the U.S. military prison at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The $2.2 trillion Build Back Better Act is stuck in the U.S. Senate, where after months of negotiations, West Virginia's Democratic Senator Joe Manchin opposes the bill, along with all 50 Republicans. The stalled legislation deprives the Biden administration of a major win that would have established programs to provide critical support to working families and promote policies to begin the transition to a clean energy economy. It's been reported that the 80,000-member United Mine Workers of America split with Senator Manchin over the bill. But a conversation between the lines Melinda Tuhus had with Phil Smith, the union's director of communications and government affairs, reveals a much more nuanced perspective. Here Smith explains that the union favored passage of the bill, but did not support everything in the legislation. While Manchin has said the bill's paid parental leave program extension of the child tax credit, and improvements to the Affordable Care Act would create dependency on government programs, Smith says his members would probably have liked to see those provisions in the bill passed. It is correct that we came out saying that we wish it was passed, um, but I, I, I think what is, what is incorrect is the notion that um, you know, we are avidly in support of every single thing that's in that act. Okay. Uh, when, when we made our statement uh, right before Christmas, we pointed to three specific things that, that, was, that was in that act that we were disappointed weren't going to get passed because the act itself wasn't going to get passed. Uh, that's not to say that um, you know, we wouldn't like for our members to get the child care tax credit. That's not to say we wouldn't like for our members to get some of the other things that were in that legislation. But those things were not why we supported the bill. Uh, we supported the bill because it had language in there that would extend the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund. Uh, for a certain period of time that the tax the companies pay. Uh, we supported it because it, it contained language that would um, perhaps make it more likely that um, manufacturers and the renewable supply chain would locate their, their plants in areas where we've already had dislocated coal miners. I mean, let's, let's remember that uh, there are already about 45,000 coal miners who have lost their jobs in the last six or seven years. Uh, those people need good jobs too. You know, and we're not just anticipating what may happen in the future, but we've got to figure out how we're going to make up for what didn't happen in the past in terms of there being jobs available for those folks, you know, when they lost them. 
Um, and then, of course, there are some components of the of the PRO Act that were included in the Build Back Better bill with respect to making it uh, more likely that workers could organize in a free and fair way uh, that we thought were important as well. So, you know, that that's really what we liked in the Build Back Better bill. Were there elements of the bill that the union absolutely opposed? We would be just as happy to see some of the renewable tax credits that were that were put in there uh, be applied evenly across the board when it came to energy production. But look, we, we, we fought a pretty large battle uh, last fall to ensure that language that we felt would have pretty much eliminated the use of coal to generate electricity in this country within just a couple of years was not included in that legislation. That was the Clean Energy Performance Program, I think is what it, called, what it was called. The way that it was written would not have provided enough time to develop the kind of jobs that we felt are needed even on the tax credits that are included in the Build Back Better bill, if there's going to be a real, a true transition, uh, we need to be able to make sure that people don't fall into poverty uh, while they're trying to make that transition because they're never going to come out of it, if, if that's the case. Phil Smith, would the union support coal production to the bitter end, even though besides its terrible impact on the climate, it also has a terrible impact on the communities where it's produced or those who are downwind of coal power plants? The union believes that you can... Uh, use coal to generate electricity in a carbon neutral way, and in a way that does not have downstream particulates, in a way that does not have a lot of the other things uh, that, you, that you're talking about. Um, look, the, the, the kind of coal-fired power plants that you mentioned that have those very bad uh, environmental impacts within the communities around those plants are old. They probably do need to be shut down um, because there's no way you can remediate to eliminate some of the, um, some of the things that come along with burning coal. That's not to say, however, that that has to happen everywhere. Um, the new supercritical coal-fired power plants that are, that are being built by other people in the world um, uh, don't emit those, those kind of particulate matter. Um, if, you're, if you attach carbon capture storage technology uh, to these plants that captures uh, all or almost all of the carbon emissions, then all of a sudden you've got a carbon neutral fuel that you can continue to use. Could you describe the difference between the union's position and Senator Manchin's on the Build Back Better Act? Well, sure. I, I, I think we've made that clear. We, we had wished that legislation was passed, and he obviously didn't wish for it to be passed. That said, as we move forward, I think people who still cling to Build Back Better need to start clinging to something else. That bill is dead. That bill's not going anywhere. So folks need to figure out what's going to happen with respect to the pieces of it that they may wish to see passed and the pieces of it that they may wish not to see passed. And so, you know, I, I think from our perspective, we want to look forward. We want to see the things that we're concerned about get passed. And by the way, those are all things that Senator Manchin supports. So, um, you know, we, we, we think that there is a way forward. We hope there is a way forward for some of these things. You know, we're going to continue to work with whoever we can work with to get that done. You know, working people need to get a better shake than they're getting now. Any way we can move to that and make that happen is something that we're going to be in favor of. Like I said, some of those things that were in the, in the Build Back Better bill would have done that. But from our perspective, let's figure out ways to still make that happen. That was Phil Smith, the United Mine Workers of America's Director of Communications and Government Affairs. Learn more about the union's stand on the Build Back Better bill and their views on transitioning to a clean energy economy by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues 
affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KHOI in Ames, Iowa, KPOV in Bend, Oregon, KUGS in Bellingham, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>